We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show as we head into our third hour. It's been fast today, hasn't it, been, Bill? It's a delight to bring back our dear friend, my old and dear friend, Dan Galerter. He is a columnist uh, for uh, American Greatness. He has a great piece, important piece, up at amgreatness.com. The coming disaster. Welcome to the most dangerous two years in American history. Dan, welcome back. How are you, man? Hi, Seth. Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Always. Thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for this piece. Uh, let me let me um, let me start sort of towards the bottom and work our way up, if I can. This this is a statement you write. This is a, something you write in your piece that I think is pregnant with importance. Uh, you're talking about the difference between the American ethos of freedom. At one part in your piece, you're talking about the American ethos of freedom. And the European ethos, and you write, the commitment to freedom doesn't exist in our government, of course, but it exists in the hearts of the American people. The challenge government faces to see just how far they can push us while preserving the illusion of freedom. That's 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 good stuff, Dan. Could you expand on it a little bit? Yes, well, I, I think that at least in our education, I mean, our, our education is, is terrible, as we know, but it preserves at least lip service paid to the uh, concept of American liberty and independence. Um, and we don't have a lot of it left. I mean, it's obvious all of us we don't have a lot of it left, but I think we may have even less than we imagine. Um, we are well positioned compared to the rest of Europe. Uh, Americans have more liberties than the rest of even sort of the uh, the Anglosphere, and you could certainly see that in stark contrast during COVID with what Canada did and is doing with what Australia and New Zealand did and so forth. Um, but things weren't all that great in America either, and uh, I, I think they're getting worse. Um, it, but the government has to be a little bit more subtle in America than it is elsewhere when it chips away at our base freedoms, because we are at least um, on a, a, a sort of emotional level uh, still attuned to the idea that we are a free people and we want to remain free. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We we do say that 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 just trips off the lips naturally. The land of the free, maybe the home of the brave. <laughs> Not the last three years, it didn't. But the, the the notion that we're a free people still trips off the lips. And when I suppose you talk to any uh, recent legal and proud immigrant, uh, when they're asked uh, what what do they like about America most, they'll say freedom. And of course, they say it without having the experience that people who have been here and seen. You know, the changes to this country, it's, as you point out, qualitatively more free than where they fled in many cases. But it's not the same freedom we used to have. We, we, we almost use the word but have emptied so much of its meaning from it. How free is it, for example, when you go to stand up at the most local democratic precinct or outpost you can, a school board meeting – 
only to then find that your attorney general, your, your, your federal attorney general, is going to have to coordinate with police to monitor the kinds of things you may be saying because it goes against the grain of modern pedagogy or progressive education, right? How free is that? How free is it when you are forced to shut down your business uh, with restrictions over an illness that made probably no real difference whether you shut down your business or not, when you are forced to not be able to go to school anymore, when you are forced to cancel events, when you are forced to cancel religious ceremonies, Sunday church, Saturday synagogue. How free is it? Um, but we say we're free. We kind of go through the form of it. We don't go through the meaning of it. Is that a fair characterization? It is, and it's deeply unfortunate. It's, it's worse than unfortunate. It is the greatest tragedy of modern times because America um, was a, a miracle in its founding, right. a sort of explosion of freedom of the sort that that could really not happen under other circumstances. It, it's a unique experiment because um, we people come to this country, uh, which is essentially empty. And yes, there are American Indians here in very small quantity, perhaps a hundred thousand or so. There would be more if they hadn't gone around killing each other so extensively. But uh, we arrive at, at a gigantic and essentially empty continent. And unlike uh, colonization efforts uh, elsewhere or by other nations, um, this is set up as a colony that's populated by the same people who who are controlling things on the other side. Um, and it's set up as a very loose sort of contractual agreement with relatively few obligations to the uh, mother nation, and uh, in particular difficult to enforce just because we're separated by so much distance and communications are so slow. As a result, people here can essentially do anything they want uh, with government just not not yet possessed of the tools that allow itself to exert control over the daily lives of everyone, because if people got fed up with a, a local government getting a little bit too big for its bridges and bridges in Boston, they could just move west. Right. And uh, if the government got too oppressive, they could move west again. And people did. They spread out over the entire country, mostly because they wanted to find a place that they could truly call their own, that they could develop themselves without any interference from officials and busybodies stealing their money and their labor. Mm -hmm. But now we've reached a point where that sort of space and freedom um, to to ramble around and stake out your claim has uh, run out and is gradually being eaten away. There's nowhere you can run in America anymore where you can get beyond the reach of the government, not just because of the limitations of physical space, but because the technological capacity of government to assert its tyranny over us has increased so massively. And in fact, I think we're near a tipping point where either things get vastly worse and really become a genuine tyranny, or we have to have a reassertion of the fundamental principles of this nation. Early on in the days after uh, 9-11, maybe, maybe the following year after, you know, we got over our goodwill towards one another, which, you know, couldn't last that long here, Dan. <laughs> you and I knew each other in those days. Um, er, er, you know, there was this talk that Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, longtime buddies, were using 9-11 to curtail American civil liberties and that they had been working on these plans for years and years and years. Some of the crazier people said they even may have had a hand in it. The less crazy people said they were our threat to civil liberties. I can't, I can't, I can't think of a civil liberty that was in fact cabined, uh, for any American uh, during that period. That having been said, I mean, we have watched what it looks like since, I don't know, March of 20, 
20. People could go back further and point to different things having to do with criminal justice. I get I get all that. But wholesale suspension of all kinds of liberties, including First Amendment, religious freedom, uh, all, commerce, the ability to engage, educate your children, all of that, all of that was massive. And I think the real worry I had of it was after it was going on, what happens when it stops? Because if they can do that over what they call a threat or a medical or scientific emergency, what can they do over the next self-declared scientific emergency and the same language used about COVID is used about the climate. And it just seems to me you had a really good test run. And the only thing I would challenge you on, and this is a tough one, Dan, (laughs) only thing I would challenge you on is when you say that uh, the commitment to freedom doesn't exist in our government, but it does exist in the hearts of the American people. Are we so sure? Are we so sure the American people still cherish their freedoms? An awful lot of them were willing to just give them up in a trice. That's absolutely true. Um, I think that a majority of Americans do still cherish freedom. And it's not, um, I mean, a majority of Americans voted for Trump and and elected him president in the last cycle. Now, we didn't get the president we voted for. Um, and I, I, but I don't think it's, it's a tiny minority. I think it's actually a pretty substantial, uh, rather, majority uh, of Americans, um, at least by several millions, who would vote yes uh, on the question of freedom. But you're right. It's, it's getting close. It's, it's getting to be a very close thing because of the way education has been set up in this country for a while now. And, and you know, certainly letting the government take over control of education is one of the central disasters of the 20th century. Yep. Um, and when you talk about the you know, the 9-11 and the sort of conspiracy theorists that emerged from that, I thought that was ridiculous at the time. But, of course, I bought into the idea of uh, – I, I was willing to believe that the people who were sort of on my side of the political aisle, as it were, were at least acting in good faith, which I don't believe anymore to have been the case. But the fact is that good intentions don't uh, don't excuse doing bad, terrible things. Correct. And um, the, the problem with disasters – is that they go hand-in-hand hand with what the government always wants to do. It's the same problem with crime, as a matter of fact. Let me hold you on that um, thought. Any- That's a good one. Can I keep you over? i got to do a quick commercial break. Can we pick up on that on the other side? I'll be here. Thank you, Dan. Dan Galerner is our guest. His piece, The Coming Disaster, at amgreatness.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dan Galerner from American Greatness is our guest. We're talking about his piece, The Coming Disaster, Welcome to the Most Dangerous Two Years in American History, amgreatness.com. Right before the break, Dan, if I can pick up what you were talking about, which is, you know, in the name of the disa- in, in the name of any disaster or crisis or whatever, whatever uh, word you want to use for it, uh, the government gets to do what it always wants to do. You were going to expand on that and then actually relate it to the problem with crime as well. Yes, the the problem is that uh, government's incentive uh, in in all these cases is misaligned with the good of the citizens. Um, Because when government, if government was, was to do its job really well, prevent bad things from happening, have a you know happy, prosperous, largely self-governing nation. There wouldn't be very much need for government. Government could get smaller if if um, gigantic uh, terrorism disasters didn't threaten, if international wars didn't threaten, if crime didn't threaten on any significant scale. 
then a lot of government would be redundant and needless, and mm-hmm. this budget would disappear, and then so would the people who are employed to exert that power. So government is not interested, really. I mean, from let's just say, aside from the practical results of what we see, we just examine this on a logical basis. Government has every incentive to fail at its job, because when it does, it can ask for more money and more power. Right. That's what usually happens. Right. Right. It's called Parkinson's Law. I just learned that. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Check it out if you haven't. I, I, I didn't know there was a phrase for it. I just learned that, Dan. Parkinson's Law. Sounds That's, like a disease. It does, but it's not. It's it's a different Parkinson and a different description. But it, it's it's the phrase for exactly... It might still be a disease. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a phrase for exactly what you were describing. So we end up in a weird situation now, particularly with this president. Partly this is maybe what you're getting at as, as far as how dangerous this situation is. We were just talking offline. I'll let the audience know. We were just talking offline about the uh, the, 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 the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, and you know his, what shall we say, cognizance, his ability to be compass mentis, his ability to exert <coughs> the powers of his office. And it seems, I think we agree, you can tell me if we don't, I don't want to speak uh, for you, I think we agree that he's actually not running things. Um, he's being used as a megaphone. Um, and if that's true, if that's true, you know, it put me in mind of something C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago back in the screw tape letters. He said, the greatest evil is not done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It's not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see the final result. But it's conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lit offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. In other words, an anonymous elite bureaucracy. I think we might be there right now. Absolutely. I mean, this, um, I think, and I wrote about this in a piece a few weeks earlier. I think Kafka actually took a, a similar approach or at least arrived at the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah, direction yeah, that yeah. The, the bureaucrats are the real dangerous ones as they are uh, cut off completely from outside society. We don't know who they are and they don't care who we are, but they, um, they are designed, and again, it's their um, incentivized to get as much power as they can incrementally, piece by piece, adding to their domain. Um, until they control essentially the entire life of the, the population outside. Just consider everything that we have to do today, um, which is mandated not by law, but by a regulation yep. that was adopted. Not it was, it was never voted on. It was never voted on by elected officials. It was just a, a group of bureaucrats at one agency or another who got together and said, this is going to be the law of the land. Now, the Constitution doesn't allow Congress to delegate its lawmaking authority to anyone, and right. yet this, this happens. Um, and, and I think a, a clear majority of the, uh, the regulations that guide our lives, that influence us, that control what we can buy and who we can talk to, where we go, how we travel, for example, I mean, basically everything um, is, is regulated by, by bureaucrats. And this was the European model of government, not the American model. The Europeans always specialized in a strong central bureaucracy uh, to run things. But America traditionally had much smaller government, much smaller civil service. But we've, we've increased this to the size where we're now maybe 20 or 30 years behind uh, Europe in terms of growth of government. And that means we're only 20 or 30 years behind Europe in terms of the onset of, uh, of tyranny, basically. Is it fixable? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? 
I'd like to think that it is, but I, I think that if it is to be fixed, it's going to have to be fairly dramatic. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, and that's why I think the, the next two years are so um, important and dangerous, because I'm not sure what will happen in the um, the midterm elections. I mean, I imagine, of course, that the Democrats will be gigantically defeated, but it, that only answers part of our problem, because one of the disappointments that came out of the uh, November elections um, uh, in the last cycle, where Trump won but lost at the same time, um, was that Republicans are really marginally more reliable than Democrats, uh, and in many cases not more reliable than than, than all, because uh, professional politicians ultimately have a lot of shared interests that encourage them to work together against regular citizens. I think that um, if we are to fix this, it would require a really... Uh, substantial victory for uh, for the Republicans in the next presidential election, and it would have to be, I think, Trump. I, I, it could be other people. I would like it to be Trump. Um, and I think that there might then be an opportunity for a dramatic uh, slimming down of government and a restructuring, a sort of freedom reset, if you will. Um, short of that, though, I think that things things can get very hairy afterwards, because on the current path, we could end up in another global conflict, which uh, aside from killing thousands or tens of thousands, maybe even millions of people, uh, would also, as these conflicts always do, greatly again expand government. Yeah, I, it's a it's a, when I think about the Republican Party and what you're talking about a little bit, it seems we have our own little brief shining moments. We have Goldwater for a moment, but then it turns into Nixon, Jerry Ford, Mush. We get Reagan for a moment, but then it turns into Bush, Mush. Uh, we have Trump for a moment, but then it turns into Mitch McConnell mush. You know, it's 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 an interesting thing. It's it's not it's not a deep state problem, but it's an exhaustion problem, maybe or or something like it, because it's not failure by dint of failing on the merits. It's failure by by what thinking we won and then we go home. I'm not sure exactly. Well, I think one of the largest problems is that we're leaving so much of our government in the hands of professional politicians so as the dictation of policy. I don't think professional politicians should exist in America. Right. It is a concept antithetical to freedom that someone is going to win an election and then spend the rest of his entire life bossing other people around. Um, and, and so the best thing that we could do uh, for all of this uh, really, for every problem that we're facing, is to have term limits at every level that prevent people from spending more than, say, two terms. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't mean two terms at one level, and then they go up to the next level. I think people should never spend more than two terms in politics at any level. So if you are, if you, if you served in your local state legislature for two terms, that should debar you from ever running for a national office. And if you serve for a, a term as a as a congressman, then you you get one more term, or you can decide to serve a term as as a senator, or at least run for that. But um, you know, look at the people who are currently in charge of the House, currently in charge of the Senate. They have spent their entire lives uh, amassing power and wealth, our wealth, our power. Um, and and it just it shouldn't happen. You can see you can see the results when it does because they are no longer aligned with our interests. They're aligned with their own interests. It's the, it's a crony clanship. That's what it is, Dan. That's what it is. Listen, sir, we could do this. We'll do it again soon. Dan Galerner, Godspeed. Thank you for being with us.
One interesting thing about something Dan was talking about it was a discussion I was having with a friend of mine the other day, uh, maybe about a week or two ago. Rand Paul has proposed legislation to eliminate uh, Anthony Fauci's uh, position. He's the director of the uh, of the uh, National Institute of Allergic and Infectious Diseases. Um, Rand Paul's position, his thought is, well, let's eliminate that position because of all the um, fury it can rain down on us. I don't think that does it. I don't think that I don't think it's about the position. I think it's about the personnel. There's an old phrase: personnel is policy. Think of it this way: Where did Deborah Burks come from? Do you remember Deborah Burks? She was right there alongside Anthony Fauci throughout the the last year of the Trump administration, up until about I think actually up until almost up until October or through October, but not November for weird reasons. But do you remember Deborah Burks? She was uh, she was you know probably second to Anthony Fauci in talking about the importance of covid restrictions and mitigation strategies and all that well where'd she come from what position did she come from they found her in the state department she was in the state department they were looking for you know whoever they could find who had some expertise in immunology they reached down to the state department and they elevate deborah burks i don't know that you know getting rid of the position gets rid of the problem the 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 idea of getting rid of some of these positions is very attractive to me. You know, the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, that's been in the sights of Republicans for years. Uh, the Department of Education was created at the end of Jimmy Carter's term and uh, really didn't get into full swing until uh, 1980. And then, of course, uh, Reagan had it when he gave Bill Bennett the job he said I, I don't I don't know what we can do to make this position small but maybe you can at least make sense of the Department of Education and there have been proposals here and there to try and get rid of it why do you think we can't why do you think we can't because of the nexus and power interests between the professional education associations and the unions and of course the money that comes out of it. The money that comes out from it, of course, is only the money that you are taxed to put into it. Simple question. Just simple, easy question. First time I ever heard it asked was asked by Bruce Hershenson in his race for Senate in California in uh, 1992, I think it was. And it was this. Can anyone credibly tell us that education in America has gotten better since 1979? Of course they cannot. Of course they cannot. You know, in Florida, where they're, where the progressives are debating and major American entertainment corporations are debating with us that they want to implant sexual and gender curricula to kindergarten, first, second, and third graders – you know, we test literacy at the fourth grade in this country. We test it in the fourth grade. And in Florida, as about is true in the rest of the country, roughly, roughly, give or take, you know, maybe five points on the margins. In Florida, as is true in the rest of the country, mostly, 
Nearly 40% of fourth graders can't read. Cannot read. Nearly 40% cannot read. Is that where the focus is? No. That is not where the focus is. The focus is on giving them books, the likes of which I described in my monologue. If you missed my monologue, I'd encourage you to go back and check it out. It's all available at 960thepatriot.com. It's free. It's one of two monologues I've done in uh, all my time in radio. How long have I been in radio, Bill? 17 years, something like that? Has it been that long? It hasn't been that long, has it? Since 04. What does that get me? Yeah, has it been that long? Only time in 18 years, one of two times in 18 years, I've said what I'm about to say, put the children away. So if you go back and listen to the monologue, you might want to consider that. Uh, and you can get it at 960thepatriot.com. All right, we've got a few calls I want to get to, and we'll do that when we come back, as well as a few other things I want to share with you. 602 because there's always room for more. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com is their website. It's their fruits and veggies I take every day. That's what I'd like you to check out if you aren't already taking them. If you are, you know how much you uh, rely on them, how, how great they are. The Whole Food Nutrition Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies made from fresh whole produce using an advanced cold vacuum process. The vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients of the fruits and vegetables are preserved so that you get the vital nutrition in each capsule. 100% whole food, 100% natural, gluten-free. Maintain your health, boost your immunity, feel better. I don't know of a better product I've ever endorsed. Balanceofnature.com. I take it every day, have been for three years. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. There's my buddy Smitty in Scottsdale. Hello, Smitty. Hello there. I have uh, two. I think it wasn't the person as much, although that focused his energy. I think he just doesn't like the concept of an unelected bureaucrat having so much power. You mean Rand Paul? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think his basic philosophy is that you know, the population, the voters should decide these life-altering, life-changing, life-controlling issues, not somebody who sits in a corner office for 40 years in Washington. I know, and you're right. But, Smitty, um, tell me if I'm wrong here. The blame isn't exclusively Anthony Fauci's, though a lot of it is. There was a president who accepted that advice. There was a president who made him his chief medical advisor on COVID. Yeah, I don't think it's good advice versus bad advice when it's all boiled down by Rand Paul. I think it's easy that it was bad advice and that focused his energy. But I think deep down inside, across the board, in every department, he would say, as a rule, I don't think unelected bureaucrats 
should have this kind of power over our lives. That's why we have rep- elected representatives. I totally agree on the merits of that point. I totally do. I just think that, you know, you are going to find uh, in any administration, state, local, national, you're going to find in any administration that it's not just the guys and gals we elect, right, who who are making the, making the, uh, making the decisions, giving the advice, right? I mean, there is... There is a chief executive that has to use or not use them. And in a sad respect, I think at a certain point we have to admit that it took an awfully long time for Donald Trump to bring in Scott Atlas. An awful long time. Yeah, I know. Who also, by the way, as much as we love him, was not elected by anyone. Right. I don't think we don't elect the Fed governors either. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a fair point. But they're more elected. They're more elected than 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 Fauci, though. They're more at least at least they have to go through a Senate confirmation. Right. Uh, one step. One step. Yes. Yes. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think I think the biggest problem, maybe one of the bigger problems with Fauci before he opens his mouth is just what he represents. Yeah. He's a lifelong. Yep. He's he. The fact that he may, is paid more salary than the president of the United yeah. States tells you a great deal. Yeah, I think that's okay. right. And I think it's the whole ethos of government by expertise, government by elite, government by bureaucrat, which I, I, I would love to whittle away at. Of course I would. And, and, and to the degree that Rand Paul is trying to do that, God bless. It is. I just don't want us to think it's a silver bullet by eliminating the position because they can put they can get rid of the position. And still have Anthony Fauci as the chief medical advisor to the president, or someone like him, right? Oh yeah. As I oh, said, yeah. Deborah Birx oh, yeah. was in the State Department until they dragged her up to the president side, right? Yes, and the, and the point is really, it's it's not it, it's a symbolic act and precedent. <sighs> For going forward and looking at all of these situations. Sure, sure. And as a senator, I'd vote for it. Absolutely right. I would vote for it. I just, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You said you all had right. another now, one, now too. On edu- yeah. Yeah, edu- education. Sure. I, b- I believe you're, you're the smart guy, and you know all that I rely on you. Oh, no. There was a period in time when when the church, the population was largely illiterate, and uh, the church was fine with that, and there was no great mood to go out and teach everybody how to read because then they could contradict the church and the teachings. Oh, I know and what so you're talking about. Sure, sure, sure. There was a great, yes, right. There was this great resistance, sure. right. And the Gutenberg exactly. changed, and Gutenberg changed that, all that, right? There was all this nervousness about the Gutenberg <laughs> press, right? Yeah. Correct. Right. Correct. Making the, the Bible accessible right. to the wider population right. as opposed to only in tr- Okay, we yeah. have that going on right now. Yeah, the the elite, uh, you know, if you are if you don't have a great education or you have a high school education, who are you to question those who went to Harvard and Yale and have double degrees right. and what they're telling you right. and, and and you know how do you question your your seventh grade teacher when she tells you there are four genders yep. and uh, uh, yeah, so that's really it. And I think the left is and the elites. That elite, who are driving all of that are are very keenly aware of it, and they're do if they're not doing it consciously, they are certainly doing it subconsciously. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Every once in a while, I will. Um, every once in a while, I will. Uh, I will 
bring up the point that, you know, what what the communists did with intellectuals. Pol Pot, the example of Pol Pot grinding up glasses, people's glasses, so they couldn't be literate, right? Um, People who lived in these experiences know what this is about. That's why censorship is so important to a tyranny. Vaclav Havel knows it probably, would you argue, as much as anyone, right? Uh, Vaclav Havel had to live under that system, had to be imprisoned under that system, the great Czech, um, Czech, uh, Czech literist. And in one of his great essays, uh, he writes, if the main pillar of the system is living alive, then it's not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth, and that's why it must be suppressed more severely than anything else. Yeah. That's did, what, didn't the, we talk about that? That That's how Kamala wound up in the White House. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and notice how the left does this, by the way. They do this with peremptory uh, stealth candidates you put up a kentanji uh brown jackson or a kamala harris and peremptorily you have now sent a signal that any criticism you're gonna have to run through a filter of it being considered racist even when it's not this is how they work this is how they act you condemn will smith you're racist even though he was attacking a black guy i mean this is how they censor you this is how they shame you this is how they silence you this is how they um maintain their vice grip on not the truth but their truth nice nice work smitty i'm seth we'll be right back suppressing the truth that's an interesting way to end the show thinking about that what does it lead to? It's not just like truth is something that doesn't really matter that just sits out there and you can suppress it without consequence. There is consequence. There's consequence to censorship. There's consequence to censoring um, alternative views and dissent. A lot of us experienced that throughout COVID. Monologue after monologue after monologue I gave was banned on YouTube and other social media. All I was talking about, and almost in every case, what I was writing about when I was writing columns about this for Fox News, was about the effect this stuff is going to have on the children. We were told to shut up, and we were shut up. I read you the New York Times today. New research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Adolescents' Mental Health During the Coronavirus Pandemic suggests that for many teenagers who were ordered to stay at home, Home was not always a safe place. A nationwide survey survey conducted in the first half of 2021 built on earlier findings of high levels of emotional distress with 44.2% of adolescents describing persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness that prevented them from participating in normal activities and 10% reporting an attempt on suicide. It also found high rates of reported abuse with 55% of teenage respondents saying they suffered emotional abuse from a parent and another 13% physical abuse. All of it, all of it, all of it, as Churchill said to Roosevelt about World War II, was unnecessary because it was preventable. But it would have only been preventable if we weren't censored and shamed for making these points before they happened, knowing that they would happen and not complaining about it 
after so that now we have a new pandemic of mental health with our kids. Good work. Good work. Not meaning to end on a sarcastic note. God bless you all. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, class dismissed.